Hello, I'm Christopher Kassan, and this is Ireland's Edge. On today's episode, we are by memory inspired as I speak with the writer Seamus O'Reilly about his award-winning book, Did You Hear Mummy Died? Seamus is a columnist with The Observer and a frequent commentator on culture, politics and parenting. His book is a memoir of his childhood in Derry, exploring his memories of his late mother, his relationship with his father, and the experience of growing up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. At Ireland's Edge in Ningle, I did a studio interview with Seamus for our live stream shows, and you'll be able to watch a video of that on the Other Voices YouTube channel. The next day, I spoke with Seamus in front of a live audience, and we'll be listening to that conversation now. Now, since this was recorded at a live event, just be aware that there may be some audio interference at times. So, since we spoke yesterday, you've been exploring Dingle, I hear. How have you found meeting the locals? Um, it's been delightful. I've never been to Dingle before, so I decided... It's shameful. It's absolutely disgusting <laughs> that I haven't been here, not Dingle. <laughs> um, I'm also writing a piece about uh, Dingle for a magazine that I'm features editor of called The Fence in London. Um, and I was going around asking people about Fungi and his place in... It's a very touchy subject. I have discovered. I, I'm wearing my Fungi socks today to I, show my support for... I know. Our but the genuine awe that you just got from that was amazing. Um, I don't, I'm telling you, the people, we take it very seriously, oh, so I be careful what you now say about Fungi. I spoke to the wonderful Aideen in uh, Dingle Books, and I asked her uh, if... You know, I was asking her about all this stuff, and I was like, yeah, I'm trying to put it across to, to a London audience, like, you know, why was this, you know, amazing dolphin so amazing? And uh, she was like, well, you know, I knew him personally. <laughs> uh, but, like, she said this all in, in one sequence. I knew him personally. I used to go out with him. <laughs> she meant swimming. Like, she used to go out and swim with him. But, like, for a second... <laughs> I was like... What, what kind of relationship do you think she had? <laughs> anyway, well, this entire interview is going to be about Fungi, yeah? Absolutely. Well, okay. that's what, that was what we agreed on beforehand. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So sign up loads of emails. I love Fungi. And thanks, everyone. <laughs> well, the reason why, well, other than my Kerry parochialism that I started with Fungi was when you sat down on the couch there, I thought this almost had a sort of a therapy element yeah. to it. And it given, Given the title and subject of your book, I didn't know whether I should just begin with uh, tell us about when yeah, your mother died when you were a small child. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, so we do, you, can, you can tell us about that because obviously the title of your book kind of gives away the, the big reveal, which is that your mother died yeah. when you were five years old. Yeah, there's not really much room for a twist. No. In the title of the book. Um, yes, yeah, so the book, if anyone uh, doesn't know is about my mother dying, obviously, but the exact phrase, did you hear mommy died, is it's a direct quote from me um, at my mother's wake. Um, so I was three weeks shy of my sixth birthday, and I was being kept basically away from people. <laughs> uh, because, you know, if you've been to something like that, you know, you'll know that the smaller kids are pretty oblivious and they just would be be running around getting into trouble otherwise, um, knocking over pyramids of sandwiches and stuff. Uh, so I was kept in a very short leash, except for one 10 minute period where I wasn't kept track of and I was nowhere to be found and then I was discovered, camped out in front of the front door as dozens and dozens of tearful mourners were coming in and ding dong, first thing they would see is me, three feet tall, bright red hair, big smile on my face, little suit, saying, did you hear mommy died? Um, you're allowed to laugh. 
And that's obviously a funny story, but it's also quite a sad story. And I think it's, the reason I chose it for the title of the book is because it's a story I love. <laughs> because, you know, it's the innocence of it, it's the sadness of it. But also the fact that sometimes when I tell that story, people don't know if they have permission to laugh. Yep. Whereas in my family, it kills. Like, <laughs> and the worst thing is, well, if you've got 10 brothers and sisters, which I do, they'll all have their own memory of that event. Some of them are younger than me, so they don't even remember it. I don't remember saying this. I, I just know that about 400 witnesses saw it happen. Um, but they'll all have different versions of it. So it kind of gets into that other aspect of the book, which is, you know, the sadness, the absurdity, the humor, the sort of childish understanding of grief and death and everything yeah. else. Because I mean, three, three weeks later, I was asking, like, when is mummy not going to be died? You know, I didn't know what that meant, obviously. And to some extent, it would be a lot more. I mean, wouldn't it be harrowing if a five-year-old did get it? Yes. <laughs> you know, well, so. it, it is, like, it's a heartbreaking image, but the way that you tell it throughout the whole book is a combination of being very, very sad and very funny and very absurd all at the same time. So as you say, you were one of, ele well, you are one of 11 children. Mm -hmm. um, your father was left with 11 children on his own after your mother died. Mm -hmm. And, you know, basically, you know, dot, dot, dot with hilarious results is a summary of a lot of stuff that <laughs> happens in the book. But did you find when trying to find the memories to be able to write this book that your brothers and sisters helped or was it in some ways difficult? Funny you should ask. So there is an idea that you might have if you've got 10 brothers and sisters, which is true sometimes, that it's like, like a Bourne movie. You know, when like the CIA and Langley, they've got like 19 satellites and they've got like one of those like underpaid kind of bit part actors who's like scrolling around and making loads of you know, typing. Because when you're operating a satellite, you're typing all the time. <laughs> That's He's going work, into yeah. the back alley, and you've got like 10 different people's perfect recollections building a 360 degree, but it's exactly the opposite. It's, it's like getting a solid version of events from all 10 of my brothers and sisters is like getting cats to pose for a photograph. They don't agree, those of them don't remember, some of them swear blind things didn't happen. Like, that happened throughout the entire process. I have a WhatsApp group in... Um, with just my family members um, called Best Face Forward, um, which is explained in the book. The least right there for anyone who's read it. Um, and it's just, I would say, like, do you remember we did this? Like, there was a, someone who choked on a summer holiday, and then like 400 replies later, it's like, yes, that happened in Rill in Wales. It's, no, 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 it happened in, it happened in Spain. So there was a boy that choked, and yeah, nobody knew CPR. So there was just like 12 people all got down and started praying because they didn't know what else to do. <laughs> and so then my brother's like, well, that was obviously in Ireland then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we narrowed it down, and it turned out it was Mosny. Uh, so sometimes you do get to go through it. You get to, to, to excavate stuff. And it is amazing having 10 little external hard drives that you can use. Um, but like all the way through my childhood, it was a bit of a nightmare because, you know, you couldn't get away with anything. Yeah. Like literally, it was Const awful. Constant surveillance. Yeah, it was like the lives of others. It was just constantly, <laughs> like, uh, horrible Soviet deep state. <laughs> the lesser known form of like oppression and surveillance in yeah, Derry I mean, when you were growing up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> within your own family. I should write another book just about how oppressed I am. I think that you should. I mean, I suppose you you mentioned the word excavating there because you were kind of excavating your own story in the sense that, as you mentioned earlier, 
you don't remember this. And you, at the start of the book, or start the process of writing the books, mentioned that you, have, you, have, you had only five memories of your mother yeah. um, before she died. Well, it's funny, though. It's a really weird kind of nested story where when I was eight, so three years after my two and a half years after my mum died, I was in, it was Mother's Day in my school, Nazareth House in Derry. Go Nazareth House. Uh, and my teacher, I used to love Mother's Day because all the teachers would be really weird around me and nice to me and stuff. And uh, as I say in the book, ordinarily, you know, these teachers were like quite taciturn figures, you know, quite stern. And particularly with me, because I was a r little rascal. And, uh, but like, they would tiptoe around me like I was a ginger little landmine <laughs> on Mother's Day. And I never had any problem with Mother's Day. I didn't get... A joke that only somebody from Derry could make. I couldn't have made that joke to you. <laughs> the landmine thing would have been too it's far. It's one of the best things about being from Northern Ireland. <laughs> just get away with all that stuff. Um, but like, on that day, usually they just let me do my own thing. I'd get to read in the corner or something. Like, and uh, I, I was never offended or weirded out by Mother's Day because no tradition of it had ever been established and it just wasn't a thing that affected me. But one year, Mrs. Duffy, my teacher, said, maybe you could just write down some memories of your mother. And I was like, oh, that's nice. And I tried and I, could, I got 10. And it was enough memories that basically they would kind of like stay in your head and you, you'd never, if you had never written them down, you'd think, oh, I've got loads of memories. Is that one, that one, that one? I like, only got 10. And the shock of it was like a second bereavement because I was eight. I was like, I've just forgotten all of this stuff. And even worse, a couple of years later, I did it again, and I had five. So even though I'd had the shock, even though I knew this was terrible, I lost five the next time I checked. So then I, those I just kind of completely memorized. And when I started the book, that's how many I had. And then over the course of writing the book, I found three more. Literally just by sitting down, I went, hey! I mean, not really, but kind of. Um, and like that, you know, if nothing else, the, the book has given me like an extra little 60% of memories of my mum, which sounds ridiculous, but that's, that's really, it's really true. Because I mean, if you're just about six years old, you've, you don't realize how little memories you have. And also the things that I remember from before then, like as I say in the book, I remember my first taste of a banana sandwich, but I don't remember being told that mommy died. Like, the actual act of someone telling me that it happened. Oh, presumably I was told. Um, the most I can remember is about two hours later, my dad was away. And my dad was out of the house. And when he, he'd obviously have to drive at like five, four and five in the morning to go and see, basically see my mum's body. Because she was in Belfast in Beaver Park, sort of a specialist cancer place. And yeah, I remember him coming home. I remember him crying. But it's considering how many huge, shocking, massive moments must have happened in those few weeks. I've got very scattered memories. You mentioned it being very like a second bereavement when you had that moment as a child of realizing that you'd kind of lost so much memory of your mother. What was the process of trying to rediscover those as an adult like? Because you're kind of getting to know her story, getting to know your own story in a way that like probably required you to ask like very difficult questions and revisit a lot of very traumatic mm. events. Like, what was that emotionally like? It was, it was pretty, it was pretty tough actually. It's tough to get. Uh, it was sometimes tough to earn the kind of 
jokey lines that I wanted, because I wanted the book to be funny, because my mother's death was hilarious. No. Uh, because these things, I think you should deal with them with the humor that they deserve, and I mean deserve, because I think absurdity is a part of death, you know, and everybody has experienced that thing in at a wake or at a funeral where there are those pockets of laughter, and if there weren't, it would be no kind of a wake at all. It, would, it wouldn't be a tribute to the person. And I don't think that is unique to, to Irish people, but I think it's very prominent in Irish wake culture. More generally, I think the gallows humour that is probably common to a lot of people in Northern Ireland, I think that's earned because, you know, if you've gone through something as harrowing as, you know, everything that went on, particularly in the Troubles, you've earned the right to look at things with a slight absurdity, uh, not as a, a disrespect of what's happened, but as a coping mechanism. Um, so when I was going through all of my memories and having to confront how I felt about things, I, I had to be honest about how sad I was. And that I hadn't done, really, even to myself. And how angry I was that she died. Um, so that stuff was hard. But there was another flip side to that, which was it was lovely having the excuse. And I do mean excuse to like text my brother, Shane, who I adore. But like, for example, he's just one, one of them. It's one of the 10. Um, at like 4 PM on a random Tuesday and say, what was Mammy's funeral like? And have an excuse to do that, because I'd never talked to him about it. And I could do that with all my brothers and sisters, because it was almost like I was, like I had a little Stetson with like a, you know, the press thing sticking out of it. I had uh, this complete free reign to go and ask, oh, it's for the book. None of it's in the book. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I've got hundreds and hundreds of hours of recordings and transcripts and stuff, and then that was, not just invaluable for you know writing the story, but just getting to know my siblings better. I mean, we're very close, but even still, there's just things which we hadn't talked about. My brother Shane told me that my sister Deborah cried so much during the funeral that her shoe fell off. <laughs> and I was trying to work at the cause and effect of that. But I was like, if I hadn't asked you about you know how you felt when you know Mammy died, 45 minutes later, I wouldn't have heard the single strangest thing from that whole day. She was carried out by our family friend, uh, who's our GP, and he sedated her. I was like, he sedated her? What did he, like, inject her? Like, like, a, like a rhino, like with a tranquilizer dart or something? I was like, no, she, she, she cried until her shoe fell off and she was taken out and sedated. And then he was like, now that I'm saying out loud, that sounds very strange. <laughs> so then people would start actually, rather than just me contacting them, I'd get around them things like, I've just remembered something. Like my dad would bring me up. My dad never rings me. It's a one-way system. So if he, if he rings me, I mean, someone's died, someone's pregnant, or he's heard an amazing political skit on Northern Irish local radio. <laughs> and if it, was your, if, it was your, if it was your heart's desire to keep a secret, what you should do is put it on Northern Irish radio and get my dad to convey its meaning over a phone call. <laughs> It was great because he was there, and I think he was uh, David Trump. No, he was Andrew Robinson, who was in, and he, he did a great skit now where he was actually going to the CBI. Was, no, 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 he was working for IBM. So, that was, you know, like you can see your nails growing. <laughs> but he, even my dad, even that daddy, who I have hardly turned into a cartoon, he would bring me up and he would say, you know. 
Oh, I've just remembered something else, actually. Uh, you know, uh, your mother was very fond of this, or uh, actually a good person to ask, but that would be your Aunt Patricia. So people became more forthcoming. It was almost like I got the excuse to ask all these things and to kind of get into sort of deeper or slightly you know, long lost memory. But they also did too. And you so did I, the excuse, yeah. It kind of became a slightly therapeutic It's thing. interesting how that process of remembering can happen. And uh, it's kind of like being a historian of your own family in some ways that you were excavating. It reminds me of a project that you did on social media a few years ago called Remembering Ireland, which oh. is like a parody history project that I loved. Um, you might tell us a little bit about that and also about like, how you think that, you know, are we, are we, when we're remembering things, are we actually remembering them or are we kind of in a constant process of remembering and re-remembering and changing the memories? And well, I think the jury is no longer out on that. I think it's, that's just exactly how memory works, that every time you remember something, you're really remembering the last time you remembered it. So everything is a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. And they've proven that time and time again with, you know, with, you can prime people to re remember things which they don't actually remember. Uh, you can make up completely false memories. Um, or you can just have, you know, that thing, you, you swore blind that the car was red, but it was blue or whatever. Just simple things that everybody understands. But uh, Remembering Ireland was, uh, it was a website a uh, Facebook page and a Twitter page. I started with my friend Michael Murray, who's from Belfast, and it was basically a piss take of those Facebook groups that are like called things like, in the days gone by. You know, it's like the kind of stuff that ends up on like a pub wall. Um, uh, like, you know, just remember the days back before COVID when there were sheep running down the road. And it's just a picture of some sheep running down the road and Everyone is just amazed that the past happened. <laughs> yeah. It's just astonishing that I was young once. Post, you know? Um, so we did that. So we made fake things. So we had, um, I mean, one of the more famous ones was we had a, we had a, a picture of a riot in Belfast, which we photoshopped in an elephant called Banjo the Riot Elephant. And my friend Michael is an astonishingly good uh, graphic designer and sort of a photo manipulator. So the picture was, you know, kind of extremely well done. Um, but then underneath the sort of legend was like, so it really looked like it was taken from a newspaper. It was dog-eared and everything. Um, and my only, he, he really took the lead in that. My only addition was that I, I said, can we put a little tiny Noam Chomsky just beside him? Just so, so we got a Noam, Chom Noam Chomsky got that into black and white and put it in there. So it looks like it is an elephant next to someone who you'd really have to squint and realize, but it is Noam Chomsky. And my thought with that was like, I kind of like the idea that people are going to see this and think that it's real, that an elephant somehow got involved in the troubles, <laughs> A. And B, that then they'd see Noam Chomsky and they'd be like, well, they wouldn't Photoshop in both of them. <laughs> Must have been real. So, did they put an elephant beside a real Noam Chomsky, or is, did they put Noam Chomsky beside a real elephant? So, anyway, so those kinds of things. We, uh, my favorite thing to do was uh, to write, uh, to put up novels that had been put. So we had one called Sheep Dip Siren, which was a farmer's special interest literature, and it was like erotic thrillers for the farming community, and we had this beautifully made 
uh, cover uh, and everything. And then we had like one page that was that was shown. So like the book's open and you see the one page and the, the image beside it. And we had it perfectly laid out. So it doesn't, you know, it, it carries on from a page that you never see, which does not exist. And it leads off into a page that you never see because it doesn't exist. And it was basically this guy who's uh, very into tractors and is, you know, having fumbles in the hay uh, with a, a local lass. Anyway, we put that up and we had two approaches from publishers. One saying, could they borrow it, this book that we'd found, which we'd invented and they didn't realize. And the other was like, can you write it and we will actually publish it? <laughs> so, and this kind of thing start, kept happening. There was no idea we did that was so stupid that somebody somewhere wouldn't believe it. Like we made action figures from the Glen Rowe cast you know, pretended that that was real. There was a, a, a Catholic heavy, heavy metal band made entirely of priests called Angelus. <laughs> and there'd, there'd be people saying, oh, I think I remember seeing these guys. <laughs> but well, that's amazing, isn't it? When you, when you kind of are suggesting to people that something was real, they then start to believe that they also remember it. Yeah, and we had a, we had a, a magazine that we mocked up, which was called Mid-Ulster Rally Dandy. And it was... We thought, no one is going to think this is real. It was a magazine for rally drivers who were also new romantics. <laughs> so it's like the guy's like in a Subaru kind of thing, but he's got like the adamant sort of facial flash. It was sponsored by UGK Sparkplugs and Vivian Westwood. <laughs> and still, some people were like, oh, I think I saw that. Do you remember this? Um, but it showed just how much people want to either want to believe what they see or also can form memories around a thing. I mean, the best example is that that first one I told you about, Banjo the Right Elephant. I did a big Twitter thread about all this because uh, Naomi Wolf uh, of Twitter uh, <laughs> and opinions. Other things. Yeah. You know that little, um, that helpful little mnemonic? About to separate Naomi Klein from Naomi Wolf. <laughs> Naomi Klein, opinions are fine. Naomi Wolf, that's what you do. That's how you do. <laughs> that's how you can remember. Yeah, um, that's how you tell those two apart. Uh, she'd said something. Just been in Belfast. It was so nice to be there. No 5G and everything. You know, the, the fre fresh air and the just felt as tranquil as the 1970s. <laughs> The height of Belfast's tranquility. Like, when I think of tranquility... <laughs> think of 1970s Belfast. Also, Belfast was one of the first places in Europe to get 5G, so completely, like I said. I like the Northern Ireland parochialism there, that like, there's a serious angle here, which is not only was she disrespecting the past, but she, she was, was also disrespecting Northern Ireland's high-tech we've, future. We've actually got very good download speeds. <laughs> this is like the equivalent of fungi for us. Yeah, basically. exactly. Um, yeah, <laughs> the most bombed hotel, really good downloads. Um, yeah, no, so I said, yes, something like to that effect, like, ah, the peace and, peace and tranquility of 1970s Belfast. And that got a lot of very funny responses. And uh, lots of them were people posting this, those sorts of things like, you know, um, people in the Divis flats with like guns pointed at them, but like, look at them, not a phone in sight. Yeah. <laughs> And it underscored the central complacency of her point, which is anything new is evil. And the, it's a reduction to absurdity that 
even the troubles were good because they were in the past. And basically that's effectively, if you take it to this most absurd thing, it's like, ah, the good old troubles. Um, well, there's something interesting in your book about the way that the, like, the troubles is a backdrop to a lot of the like absurd family stories that you remember or that your siblings remember. And like, it's not a book about the troubles and you know, there's a bit of a tendency sometimes to reduce everything that was ever produced in Northern Ireland since the 60s as to being about the troubles. Yeah. So I'll try not to do that. But you, it is a constant hum in the background. It's like one of those five memories that you mentioned earlier that you remember of your, of your mother is her squeezing your hand during a bomb scare yeah. in Derry. Like, how did you balance like talking about like having that as something that obviously was there and was important and was scary and was traumatic without it, you know, turning into a, a story of one boy's childhood and, you know, terrorism in Derry? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm lucky I didn't, ha I, I literally had to work with what I had and I being as young and devilishly handsome as I am, uh, you know, I was just going to secondary school when the peace agreements were really kind of kicking up and, and picking up speed and things were kind of leveling out. So I will always preface discussions of this type by saying, you know, I'm lucky in that even for my older brothers and you know, certainly my, my parents and their generation, you know, it does not compare, you know, and the stuff that they had to go through on a daily basis. Like my dad had to be, was patted down every time he went into a record store, you know? My dad didn't get the right to vote until he was 30, you know? so. I can't really complain too much. Um, but I can write a thrilling book with the four things that did happen. Um, but like, we did have things. I mean, as much as I say all that, and I do preface things like that, you know, we did the checkpoint run every day. So they had, you know, soldiers with dogs and machine guns checking under my dad's, the minibus that we all went to school in, which was, you know, already a nauseatingly mortifying experience going to school <laughs> in a minibus. It's like a, the sort of vehicle you'd use to transport a volleyball team of young offenders. Uh, and they're checking under it for explosives, you know, with the little stick in the mirror. You know, that's it. I was three weeks shy of my sixth birthday where I wasn't kept track of threat, and I was nowhere to be found. And then I was discovered camped out in front of the front door as so dozens and dozens of tearful mourners were coming in. So I would tell and people ding dong, too first thing they would see is oh, me, yeah, there was that. three feet tall, bright red <laughs> um, hair, and also big smile on my face, little suit, literally saying, did you hear mommy died? That's obviously a funny story, um, but it's also quite a sad story. Right on the border, so there was the UK customs hut was at the top of our field, and then across, just literally 20 metres to the left, was the Irish customs hut, and the IRA drove up and they threw basically a, a roses tin or like a quality street tin with a bomb in it and it blew the whole thing up. It was like one of those horrible little prefab huts and it was so shoddily made. Terrible British craftsmanship. <laughs> <laughs> that the whole wall, the back wall of the, the sort of the privy that was the back of the customs site flew up into the air and crash landed in our field with the sink still smoldering. Attached to it. I really wish it had been the toilet because it would have been such a better sort of like visual metaphor. And as I looked at that toilet, smouldering, I wondered, are we all a toilet? Um, it just shows your integrity to the historical process that thank you weren't you. willing to change that. Thank in the you. Book thank just you so much. Better. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I could have made the. Do you think I would have made the book better? I think it would have been better. <laughs> Tiny little floaters sat there. So much like our dreams. 
here in this benighted place of barbed wire yeah. and sandbags. Um, that's the voice it's I huge. do whenever I'm pretending to care about the troubles. Um, but you did just, in about five minutes or less there, go from... I mean, I can't really complain too much about the troubles. Nothing really happened to me when I was growing well, up, that's, other than the bomb scares, the daily yeah, we, we haven't talked and about the bomb that went off down next no, to my house. That's, that's exactly the thing. Is like, so much of it was background noise that as, even as I was writing the book, I was like, this is weird that this happened. Like, my wife's from Dublin, and she finds it extremely strange how cavalierly we talk about it. I wasn't even told that story about the, um, the, the wall and the sink and the explosion. Toilet. The, let's say the toilet. But when the massive metaphorical toilet um, that was kind of a metaphor for, like, the Downing Street Declaration, actually, I think, um, it, when I, I wasn't told about that until I was about 20. I was there for it, but I was three, so I didn't remember it. But like, no one told me about it. It just wasn't considered interesting or important. When the Derry Journal covered it, like four days later, it was like halfway down page 13, because there'd been like 11 other more significant bombings that weekend. So like, even then, we weren't, it wasn't even a significant bomb. So I suppose we just, yeah, we kind of didn't think that it was that big a deal. And the bomb scare that I mentioned as well, which is, um, my mum was very scared, I could tell, because she was like, gripping my hand. Um, but most of the people on the bus were just bored. And they're like, oh, God, that's going to have to redirect the bus. And the bus driver was, like, talking to the soldier who, like, was poking a machine gun in through the window and talking about him. So I, I just remember all that very, very vividly. Do you find, like, being married to somebody from Dublin and living in, in, the, U in the UK, <laughs> well, living in Britain, um, in London, that people understand or care about where you come from? Or do you find it frustrating that you get stereotyped? Uh, especially, like, you know, <laughs> you're kind of a heavy-handed metaphor anyway, in yeah. the sense that you, you didn't so much grow up on the border as literally grow up on literally the border. Literally inside the border. <laughs> um, yes, my dad's fence is 0.04% of the Irish border. I did the maths. Um, but uh, do, they, do people in London care or understand about Northern Ireland? No and no. Okay. Very, very easy question. Mm, about half of them think that Northern Ireland is part of Ireland anyway. Uh, the other half think that the other, other half think that all of Ireland belongs to the UK. Um, so, like, do you find? I mean, is it frustrating when you get asked to like give the Northern Irish view on? No, I because I, I think I'm basically right about everything. I'm like, I might as well. Um, no, but it was interesting. Around with the time of Brexit happening, it, it was very... I was doing more stuff for The Guardian about the border because ordinarily the stuff I'd done for The Observer would be kind of like quite a light-hearted stuff and family stuff. And then for The Irish Times, it would both be arts and culture. And I was very, very angry, obviously, about not just about Brexit itself, but just about the way people talked about Northern Ireland or didn't talk about Northern Ireland. And so I felt like I had uh, Larry Ryan, who was opinion editor at, um, at The Guardian, he said, hey, would you write about this? Because he'd seen some tweets. I was like, yes, I will. And I ended up having to do it a few more times because I don't think they know anyone else saw them from Northern Ireland. <laughs> I don't that being um, facetious there. But it was very striking that there was so few Northern Irish people talking about it. And if they were, it was a very dry account. Um, I think Patrick Kilty's written very... Uh, very well about it as well, and um, and Lyra McKee obviously did as well. 
but it was vanishingly small, so we didn't even have a chance to talk. And the people who did were either, you know, political stumpers, um, who, or they were so unbelievably denuded of opinion. It was so neutral, because an awful lot of people are so terrified of offending Northern Irish people. And as I said to you yesterday, that's one of the real perks of being Northern Irish is you're not scared of Northern Irish people. <laughs> Unlike the rest of us who have, yeah. have to be scared of them. Yeah, I mean, I, if I turn my accent back to the way it used to be, I get served really quickly in kebab shops. <laughs> but I was in Dublin for seven years and it flattened my accent out horribly, as you can hear, which is disgusting. Um, the tongue is a traitor to Does the it come mouth. back when you're around dairy people? I hear you met some dairy people last night yeah. around the town. Yes, it comes back immediately. Yeah. It's like Furbies, you know, they start talking to each other in their strange little language. Um, was there a dairy nostalgia society going on there last night? There was. Um, I met up with some uh, dairy friends in uh, the Hillgrove, and yeah, I got very sentimental. We were talking about how great dairy was, and then just slowly but surely. Dairy people talk very fast. We talk like our teeth are on fire. And that's the sign that I know. I'm like, oh, I'm very, I'm very drunk, because I don't know how I'm Two wee Furbies. Um, but yeah. You mentioned there that some of your other writing is focused on parenting, because you have become a father yourself in recent years, mm -hmm. around the, you know, and the, the process of writing this book, which obviously your mother is the title character. But in many ways, it's a book about your dad as well, um, or in part because your, your dad. That's is, so lovely. Thank you. Your dad is, um, you know, an extraordinary character. I mean, first of all, father of eleven children, widowed father of eleven children, but also a man of like considerable charisma. It's the way that it comes across in the book. Well, let's not go absolutely nuts. <laughs> Uh, but I was going to ask, like, at be, becoming a father yourself, writing a book in which your father is like one of the major yeah. characters, was that a you know a learning process of you as you became a father? Like, no, absolutely. I think everyone in my family who's had kids has had that same thing of like calling my dad up on a random wet Monday when you've just stepped on another Lego and you're covered in yogurt, and just ringing him up to say, how, how, did, how, did, "How did you do this? Why, why did you have so many children?" <laughs> Like, every day, I think there should be a parade in my honor because I have one child. <laughs> I am, like, God's perfect human being every single time he, like, survives one more day. Um, and so we ask him, and my dad doesn't... My dad is a, a wonderful man and a fantastic parent, but it's, it was very, very hard for me to to think about his achievements, because it's, it's a bit like staring at the sun. It's like, how the hell did you look after 11 kids? Um, and, and deal with the loss of, you know, my mom, the love of his life. He's never re remarried or been in any other relationship. Um, and have to deal with all of our sadness, your own sadness, and then just logistically, on a single wage, bringing up 11 children, um, you know, that, all that stuff, I kind of was a bit older when I started to think about that. And then, as you get older and then you, you actually are a parent, you're like, this is so hard. <laughs> and I complain a lot. And like, my dad didn't really complain that much. Like, or maybe I've just blocked it all out. Those are the other memories that I don't have. Um, Do you feel this changed your relationship with him writing this book? Oh yeah, absolutely. He likes me loads more now. 
Well, because now he's famous. There are no more points. Marion Key said she wanted to go on a date with him. <laughs> That's my, I'm, I'm the favorite son now. Um, no, it did, it really did, and all joking aside, because it got me, it gave me the chance to say, like, as I say in the book, one of my dad's most incredible achievements is that he's a very loving and demonstratively loving man. Um, you know, he's like a quieter guy than me, which might shock you, uh, and reserved, he, like a, a rural Irishman who's 74 years old, you know, as you might imagine he would be. Um, but he was very committed to showing love and sort of men showing love, like a dad's showing love. Um, I think some of it would come from his interpretation of his faith as well. Uh, my father is very connected to his Catholicism, um, very undogmatic about it, but him and my mother would have been, I mean, I don't know if it's really Catholic hippies, but it's like very much involved in inter interface and, and cross-community stuff like Caramila, um, very much involved in sort of like marriage counseling stuff. And I think he really, it was astounding how he was able to, you know, verbalize and sympathize and be kind of showy with his, with his feelings and allow us to be. So growing up, we knew that we were loved and we'd hug and we'd say, I love you and stuff like that. Certainly a lot more than like my friends with, with their dads. And obviously there's chicken and egg where I don't know if that's because after my mum died he had to assume both roles to a certain degree or you know if that was just the way he was you know we lucked out that you know if you know a mum was to die then at least he was able to do that but whatever way it happened to you we grew up knowing that we were loved um and that's not really very funny <laughs> so then I had to add in all of the very funny parts of his character, which is that he is the world's biggest square. He has the attitudes and opinions of like a 900-year-old man. <laughs> he loves Northern Irish country music, which is the thing after the troubles for which Northern Ireland should be most ashamed. <laughs> Sometimes tied, but mostly second. <laughs> Depends. Um, He's so squared that he had never heard of uh, a high five. This is recently, this is about five years ago. <laughs> someone had done, someone, I don't know what we'd done to merit a high five. Um, but he, um, he, he, someone had said something he approved of, probably, I don't know, Daniel O'Donnell is good or something. And uh, my dad said, slap my hand high up in the air. <laughs> Excuse me? Did you say what? Uh, he'd never heard of rock, paper, scissors. Uh, not just the name, we demonstrated the whole thing, getting increasingly angry that we thought this was a bit. He's like, no, no, like you do this. Is, why would you do that? that? I don't mean it's, you've never seen this before. You've never even seen this on TV. Never seen that before in my life. Is it, is it like TikTok or something? How do you know what TikTok is? And you don't know. What? Rock, paper, scissors? It's not new. <sighs> Just made myself angry. Um, I like that what was going to be a very sentimental answer about fatherhood is now a list of things that your father annoys yeah. you about. I give the people what they want. <laughs> exactly. No, but, but what I'm trying to get across is that all the lovely things about my dad, I had to leaven the bread a bit. Yeah. Because he, it's, 
you know, I, we have a worshipful regard for my dad. Um, and oftentimes when I tell people about my dad, they're just in, stunned into shocked silence, as they should be. So I want to give them a little ramp out of that and say, oh, he's also a completely ridiculous man who, like, <sighs> the things he used to call me up and tell me to put in the book. Courtney Cox is going out with a fella from Derry, one of the guys from Snow Patrol. <laughs> and she was in Derry. And he's like, just ringing to say, uh, Courtney Cox, the actress, is in Derry if you wanted to put it in the book. <laughs> I was like, what would, what would that be like? Where does that go? In the story of my life. <laughs> and then, of course, there was the day. And the funny thing about it is, it is in the book because I tell that story. I was, <laughs> was going to say, so he, wins. he got his way in the end. Like, uh, oh, God, the dog, everything the dog, do, the dog does. His former dog, Sally, R.I.P., um, who had died by the time I finished the book, but I couldn't actually bring myself to, to, um, to, to kill her in the book. Kill her, no, I love... You know what I mean? So she's still alive in the book. My dad would ring me up and say, she's gone all the way around the house and now she's looking at me through the window. <laughs> I was like, you can put that in the book. And it is in the book now. I was gonna say, again. For the same reason. <laughs> it seems dad always got his way, but like, I loved getting to know your dad through the book. I loved getting to know your mother through the book. And I loved the way that you, as you say, leavened the bread with, there's a lot of sadness, but there's a lot of humor in it as well. I would highly recommend any of you who haven't read it to read it. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us. I could talk to you all day. <laughs> Thank you so much to Seamus O'Reilly for joining me in Diggle. You'll be able to watch a video of my studio interview with Seamus on the Other Voices YouTube channel. Did You Hear Mammy Died is out now in all good bookshops. On our next episode, Warren Kelleher speaks with the energy investor and campaigner Michael K. Dorsey about COP26, environmental politics, and whether we can still avert climate change catastrophe. It was quite clear that the the blame, at least, or the res responsible parties for uh, you know, the climate problem, at least, were corporations, and specifically oil companies. Uh, and oil companies obviously took umbrage with that. And they began to, you know, roll out propaganda, roll out media. That basically puts us in the moment now where suddenly people want to do things individually, uh, do silly things like, you know, offset their behavior and so forth. Uh, they want to do that in part, not because it's good or bad, but because corporations spent the last 20 almost 30 years, convincing uh, folks that, hey, you're part of the problem, not us. To make sure that you don't miss that or any of our future episodes, subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a South Wind Blows production, and I'm Christopher Cassan. Thank you for joining us. I look forward to your company next time on Ireland's Edge. <laughs>